This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm a registered voter. Is there something I'm supposed to say uh, about that? I might, what, what do you want? A present? Are you a registered voter or what? Yes, I'm a registered voter, of course. What am I supposed to be? Well, Everyone's a registered voter, aren't they? This is not, no. Sadly, this is not true. Um, and it was easy for me to register to vote, and I bet that it was easy for you, but that's still not true for a lot I of people. I can't even remember when I registered to vote. I was going to ask you, were you like, I assume, I have, did you like promptly at 18... I'm sure I did, but I have zero memory of what what was done or how that happened. Um, although, you know, you know, a lot of people are going to have zero memory of what the, what, how that happened because they're not going to get registered to vote because the Republican Party and Stop the Steal proponents who are falsely claiming that there was election fraud in 2020 are hell-bent on making it harder to vote because they think that the more people vote, the less they're going to win. Um, and they're advancing a lot of legislation to set up barriers uh, to voting, especially for voters of color. So as most of our listeners, probably all of our listeners know, midterm elections are coming up. I'm sitting here getting twitchy. And historically, when there isn't a presidential election, uh, turnout is way lower. And often um, the party that won the presidency, if they control Congress, they often lose control of Congress. That's that's often a thing that happens. And the Census Bureau, I went and looked this up and was pretty horrified. The Census Bureau says the most common reason for not voting among, and this is registered non-voters in 2020, was a lack of interest in the election. Um, others said that they didn't like the candidates or the campaign issues. I mean, Jesus, I don't like the campaign issues either, but like that's why I vote. Um or then there were people who were too busy or forgot to vote. Although I would point out, we haven't really met, talked about this, but I'm sure that everyone is, is well aware of the referendum that passed the ballot initiative that passed in Kansas uh, that um, rejected the idea of uh, putting uh, anti-abortion language into the state constitution. And that was it happened because a tremendous number of people came out to vote much more um, than usual. Um, all right, but but when people aren't registering, they most people okay. Here's when people register when they get their driver's license. So, you know that's I guess the normal way to do it. Um, but I go to the library and the bookstore a lot more than I go to the DMV. The DMV is kind of an unpleasant place. Yeah, that's yes. Um, I only shudder in horror as I approach the DMV. But 
um, I think a library or a bookstore would be the perfect place to register people. And this summer, writers for Democratic Action have been organizing to do just that. For the past couple of months, they've been doing a big national drive involving readers and writers and booksellers and publishers and the best people of all librarians working to register voters in advance of the 2022 midterm elections. That is correct. And on September 20th, the American Library Association's National Voter Registration Day, books and bookstores and libraries across the country are going to be hosting readings and events to encourage people to register to vote. It's called Book the Vote. And today we're joined by Rachel DeWaskin from Writers for Democratic Action's National Steering Committee, who's going to tell us more about why voter registration is so crucial this year. Rachel DeWaskin is the author of five novels, a collection of poetry, and a memoir, Foreign Babes in Beijing, about the years she spent in Beijing as the unlikely star of a Chinese soap opera. The recipient of a National Jewish Book Award, a Sidney Taylor Book Award, an Alex Award from the American Library Association, and an Academy of American Poets Award, she's published work in The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Plowshares, and New Voices from the Academy of American Poets, among others. She teaches at the University of Chicago. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you uh, joining us uh, with your marvelous uh, backdrop there. Um, our, our podcast listeners won't be able to see that. Wait, it's Lake Michigan that's in the background there? I am in downtown Chicago with Lake Michigan and the Field Museum it's very behind beautiful. Me. Looks like a nice day. Um, so back in 2020, writers including Paul Oster, uh, Siri Hustvelt, Karen Forche, and Natasha Trethewey founded Writers Against Trump. Now, two years later, a poll finds that 69% of Democrats and 69% of Republicans consider that, that, quote, democracy is on the verge of collapse, end quote, but blame different actors. Uh, we've just heard Joe Biden's big address on what he calls MAGA Republicans and threats to democracy. Uh, Writers Against Trump is now Writers for Democratic Action, and Book the Vote is bar- marked as a bipartisan effort. Can you talk a little bit about your group's shift since 2020? Because I remember joining the original group, by the way, um, and thinking and the thinking behind that. Thank you for joining the group, by the way. So Writers for Democratic Action was founded, as you mentioned, by a small but fierce group of writers in 2020. And we've now grown to almost 3,000 members from all over the place and hundreds of uh, partner organizations. And, you know, as for our name, I think the threat to democracy represented by the Trump administration and the January 6th insurrection was and is ongoing, and that most people committed to safeguarding democracy didn't, even in the wake of his defeat, claim, you know, mission accomplished and move on. We needed to keep fighting, and we need to keep fighting to address some of the root causes of our peril. And that work continues to evolve, like democracy itself continues to evolve. And so after we moved past the years of the Trump administration, Writers for Democratic Action wanted to kind of reflect our ongoing commitment to our mission, which is to bring the literary community together to protect democracy, to demand racial and economic justice, and to champion suffrage. Finally, of course, that fight is tied to the one that safeguards books and reading and writing, which are themselves, you know, symbols and acts of of democracy. So some of your group's efforts have been shaped by the extremely popular horribly misleading, provably false claims that election fraud led to Joe Biden winning the presidency in 2020, um, which many of us know is kind of under stop the steal rhetoric. And in a number of states, Republicans have advanced or are advancing legislation to make voting more difficult. 
Um, so I looked up some stats from the Brennan C- Center for Justice at NYU, their law school. They do a voting laws roundup um, every few months. And they said in May that since the beginning of 2021, 18 states have passed 34 restrictive voting laws. And the Justice Department has gotten involved. Uh, so filing suit in Florida and Georgia, for example, alleging that such efforts, uh, alleging that such efforts target black voters. Uh, We're talking about the Justice Department now, not while Trump was president. Uh, Across the country, these kinds of restrictions include restrictions on proof of citizenship or limiting access to voting by mail or limiting access to food and water for those standing in line to vote. Your group, the Writers for Democratic Action, has committees in battleground states, Florida, Michigan, Texas, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Wisconsin, but also book to vote events far beyond that in about 40 states, including Minnesota, and in my home state of Missouri, thank you for coming here. Can you tell us a little bit about how the organization is targeting its efforts now and how you came up with Book the Vote as a countermeasure? Voting registration and every individual's citizen's right to vote is the heart of democracy. And of course, bookstores and libraries are centers of engagement, not just literary, but also civic. You know, we know that some of the challenges to participation, which you mentioned, those stats are totally horrifying, um, include lack of access, misinformation, and disenfranchisement. And so we're working with bookstores and libraries to do what they anyway, it seems to me, do best, which is to make information and engagement available to every person um, through, you know, essential community gathering spaces, thinking spaces, meeting spaces, places for people to read and talk uh, and take action. And, you know, one of my steering committee pals, the writer Robin Davidson, who heads up our Texas committee, just wrote this great sentence about democracy. She wrote books as the freedom to read and write what we choose are democracy in action. And to me, that seems exactly right. And it seems a significant way to describe book the vote, which is to say everybody should get to vote and get to read and write and speak freely. And so we paired those ideas in book the vote, which is really just a way for libraries and bookstores in communities to set up tables. Uh, In Michigan, where I'm the chair of the committee, we have tables with laptops open to the Secretary of State website. It's actually very easy to register to vote, but people don't know that. And they don't know that for all sorts of reasons, both insidious and more innocent. Um, And so we're just trying to, to give information to sign up anybody who wants to vote and to make sure as many people participate in voting as as can, because, of course, that's the engine of democracy. So I was just thinking about I don't know. I was a little kid when I got my first library card and I I kind of stood thinking you go to get your driver's license. No one is like, would you also like to get your library card? Um, And yet we're, you know, (laughs) we should kind of think that we should. I think that we should do that. And I also was just realizing how separate like the bureaucracy my, my county office might as well be my library, but the, my county office, I, I recently, um, the just this weekend actually officiated the wedding of two of my former students. And so like had to go to a way to sneak that one in Sugi. <laughs> it was kind of, it was, <laughs> that's very was sweet. Amazing. And I had to go to the county she office. She's and... pretty cool for having been, <laughs> having permission to marry people. Now that's her thing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm the captain of the ship and, and but like you go to the the county office is terrifying and it's just like you get you get a number you you know you get a ticket like you're at the deli counter and you know you're like B72 and you look up at the screen and they're on like Q49 and the next thing is not sequential and you're like I'm never going to get out of here I'm in I'm in an endless queue and and they want you to feel that way and the library on the other hand 
I mean, it's also in a lot of communities, including mine, like a refuge for people who are housing insecure, who don't have access to technology. Um, it's a safe space. And it just seems like the opposite, the exact opposite of the way that that um, all those voter suppression efforts are going. And so these I'm curious, I, I know that you have also been um, working particularly with a student organization to register younger voters. I was reading about efforts in school libraries and, and at universities because like the voting population is still older and wealthier and has more education. And so that a lot of the effort is targeted at young people. How is that going? I think it's going beautifully. We don't have a metric for measuring how many individual people we've signed up to vote, but there's an enormous amount of momentum for this project. And we have, as I said, hundreds of partner organizations now. And as of an hour ago, 160 Book the Vote bookstore partners in 40 states. And, you know, young people really, really care about this terrible situation that we're in. And they're aware of it. They seem to me educated, well-read, and in some cases they feel powerless. And this effort, like so many efforts, is a way to, to re-empower people, to remind kids that actually some of these local elections are won and lost by a matter of a thousand votes. And so it matters enormously to get people out to vote in the midterm elections. And I've actually found it re really reassuring my work for WDA, both in Michigan and, and in the national committee, because people care deeply about what happens to democracy. A lot of people who are both, you know, very literary and very civic minded are focused on this and not sure how to help. And so one of the ways that we're helping is by being almost a clearinghouse online. We say, come to our website, sign up and figure out small ways to, to plug in in your own home state or your home community. Go to your local library and help them, you know, print out some book the vote pieces of paper, help them print out voter registration forms. And these are small ways which actually have huge impacts if everybody contributes. Like democracy, <laughs> all of it's always symbolic of the larger the larger question. I have a question about that larger issue. Like, so, I, you know, I was born in, in the late 60s and I remember, so I was young when like the bicentennial was happened, which was a period of like almost unreflexive patriotism, although there were plenty of things wrong with the country in 1976. And a lot of my life has been about learning to wean ourselves off of the reflexive patriotism of, of, of 1976. I think learn like when I say we, I'm talking to myself as like a white a resident of the city, right? Who was who was not born to, th who was not brought up to think about the issues that we often discuss on this podcast, like immigration, like race relations, like you know fairness and equity, like you know the 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 way that women are discriminated against in the society. So there are all these issues, right? But we often, and I'm talking about this podcast, even we are focused on the things that are wrong with democracy. But when you're trying to get people to vote, and Suki and I, you know, quoted at the beginning of the show, you know, that the, the Census Bureau says the most you know, people don't vote because they're not interested in the election or they don't like the candidates. Is there a part of the role that writers can have in this in like telling people why democracy is good, you know, <laughs> along with what's wrong with our democracy? Is it necessary to have good stories about democracy that we're telling to people? I mean, I don't think that it's the domain of creative writers to to answer questions exactly. I think that role is best left to the propagandists. And let me answer this in a, in a slightly kind of maybe poetic or personal way. You know, I spent my 20s uh, in Beijing 
I was, as, as you mentioned in your very generous uh, intro, the star of a Chinese soap opera about foreigners falling in love with China by way of Chinese men in, in the case of the soap opera. And I spent a lot of time thinking about information and patriotism and how information is conveyed and also propaganda. And it, it came to me living in China as a young person that propaganda is not in fact about persuading people of your idea or your point. It's really more of a dare. How outrageous a line can of officialdom yes. propose? Absolutely. And what are you going to do about it? Right? And so I, when I later came to be a writer, I moved back to the United States because of the poet Robert Pinsky. This ties to the question of democracy and, and writers and what our job can be. And I thought that Robert Pinsky, whose career I was able to see from Beijing, was democratic and was patriotic in his poetry by way of a deep intellectual commitment to freedom mm. and to wonder. And for me, creative writing, the engine of creative writing is actually wonder. It's a way of asking questions in as many and as kaleidoscopic and nuanced a way as possible, which is the opposite of answering questions. And this is not to say that I'm a moral relativist, but it's to say that I think what writers do is we ask the questions and we reframe them in ways that are complex and that allow for analysis and deep and profound thought. And I think those questions are often the same questions that we might want to be asking about you know history and democracy what just happened what's happening what happens next so um i'm curious have you staffed one of these tables so i'm not physically in michigan right, of course you're in chicago <laughs> i live in chicago i i'm from michigan and i love michigan and happily it turns out in michigan it's very easy to register to vote and you just need to go to the Secretary of State website. So we don't actually have all of our tables there staffed. Many of our tables sit beautifully. They have I read and write for democracy signs. You can take a democracy shelfie at our tables. You can read democracy books by people like Margaret Atwood, ta Coates, uh, Paul Oster, Representative Raskin. Ada Limon, our new poet laureate, we have a democracy book club and we offer a lot of views on democracy and a lot of views on the world, migration, racial justice, gender issues, and you can sign up to vote. In Texas, we have volunteers staffing those tables and it's more complicated in certain states to register. On our website, writersfordemocraticaction.org, we have links to each of our state committees and pages, and you can go and find out how to register to vote in each of those states. In many cases, you can just do it online via our website. And in some cases, you can go to your local library or your local partner bookstore and do it there and have a cup of coffee and talk about books and hopefully buy a book from your local indie. So it does seem like I noticed that your Texas events, um, that's very, it's very active. Um, and actually, um, yeah, I saw that you did an event with a bunch of activists, one of whom is an old college friend of mine, David Modigliani. And, um, oh, that, I mean, so it seems like in some states, the participation is a little different. The conversation is a little different. Can you characterize any of these at all? Well, I think a lot, we have many different conversations happening. Again, it's a kaleidoscopic look at America and at the, the world larger in, in, a, in a larger way. It, 
it's a kaleidoscopic look at America and at sort of global politics and where we fit in. We're trying not to be myopic in our conversation about democracy and, you know, America's obviously tied to every other place. And so we're, we're aware of that issue as well. In Michigan, you know, we have four upcoming events for National Voter Registration Day happening on the 20th. And these are happening across the United States. I happen to be chairing the Michigan committee, so I know all of the details of those events. And they're, they're very various, you know. We have Peter Davies in conversation with uh, Charlie Baxter and Jakinda Townsend. We have Kylie Reed reading in Detroit at the Room Project in conversation with me. I will be in Detroit on the 20th for that event. And we have uh, we have events happening in Grand Rapids, happening in Chelsea, happening in Ann Arbor, and happening in Detroit. And of course, the people we invite come from all walks of life and have all sorts of positions on these issues. And that's true of our Democracy Book Club as well. So our first Democracy Book Club interview was between Paul Oster and Jamie Raskin, Representative Raskin, both very civic-minded and very literary, very forward-thinking guys. I just interviewed Ada Limon, our new Poet Laureate, last Sunday. She's also extremely generous and very insightful about the intersections between poetry and democracy. And next uh, week, or in two weeks, I'm interviewing Margaret Atwood about her new collection, Burning Questions, which is about you know, democracy and authoritarianism and how the world works and doesn't work and what questions we might as creative writers be asking. So I should say for um, our listeners, I asked the Texas question because we have done a number of WTF Texas episodes on this show. It's our least favorite state. <laughs> so Sorry, I Texans. did. So I did notice that. You can and make it better by voting differently if you well, want to. We would like it a lot more. Let me, de- let me just let me defend Texas <laughs> just by saying that Robin Davidson, who's on the state steering committee there and on our national steering committee, lives in Texas. And she is so wonderful. And she is powerfully fighting every possible good fight with many, many, many good Texans in her corner. Yeah, we've also had a number of wonderful Texas writers on the show talking about exactly those sorts of efforts. And we're, we're glad to know about that one. And I will say also, um, I was nerding out last night watching Jamie Raskin, who I am such a fan of. I'm from Maryland and I'm just, I I love watching him and, and watching him and Paul Oster talk was, was great. And so that's actually recorded. So for those who are interested in those sorts of conversations between politicians and writers and between writers and writers about, about democracy, that is all um, archived really helpfully on your site. That's true. Please come and visit our events. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. I take your point about the difference between, you know, you don't want to write propaganda about democracy. I don't know. Would, would that old thing that with the cartoon, like, I'm just a bill. How does that song go, Sugi? <laughs> Schoolhouse Rock. Schoolhouse Rock. Is that propaganda? <laughs> it worked for me. I thought that, I mean, I remember that no, song. No, I don't think so. I don't <laughs> think that qualifies. I think that's, um, it was cute. I think that's, that's pretty artful. It's certainly very memorable and, and yeah. lyrical. And I think for little kids, you know, you want to educate little kids about how democracy works. I think that's kind of more of a how-to. I don't think that exactly, you know, took a took a strong moral position in one direction <laughs> or the other. I was just thinking. <laughs> and I'm I mean, not I'm not arguing that writers shouldn't make points. I think every act of writing is a political act. I do agree with that. You can't write something without having made a political statement in one way or another. You want to well, be careful what you're saying and what you're asking. I also think the logic of writing is based on the system of assertion and evidence. 
which is sort of a foundational thing for democracy, that you're going to make an assertion about someone, but you need to have provide evidence to back it up. Like, and where does that evidence come from? And can that evidence needs to be able to be argued about? And someone can contradict that evidence. And we're going to have an argument that's about assertions and evidence that are based in fact. And people can have different opinions that way. And that authoritarianism occurs when people stop caring about the evidence. They just say something. They don't care whether it's true. Like the Luke Oil chairman fell out of his window recently. Oh, sure. He was depressed. That's what happened. You know, there's no, no, there's no actual attempt to find the evidence. The state makes up a, a reason, right? And so when we, when we, the big lie that, that we were mentioning, you know, about the election with Joe Biden, refusing to believe that he was properly elected is an assertion with no evidence, right? And so that's why I feel like writing is connected to democracy because writers understand the relationship between assertion and evidence. They don't want to escape the bounds of that, you know, particularly if, when you're writing nonfiction. I think that holds for nonfiction. I often think about James Baldwin's idea when I'm writing fiction that preaching and writing are opposite pursuits. He argues in a Paris Review interview from the 1980s that when you get up to the pulpit, you have to convey a conclusion to your congregants. You've already arrived at some idea that which you know is right and for which you may or may not have evidence, as you point out. But when you're writing fiction, you're actually heading into the dark about something that you don't understand and you don't necessarily want to understand. You're trying to figure out, you're compelled by some force both internal to you and potentially exterior to you to discover something. It's a kind of asking, it's an asking momentum and, and not, a, not a knowing one, not an answering one. And I mean, this sort of puts us in a curious kind of argument where, you know, Donald Trump does strike me as a kind of preacher and he's not, you know, and you can find figures like that on the other side of the aisle. Um, those figures have always been in our politics and to take the introspection and questioning and wonder of, for example, fiction or, you know, poetry has a powerful political tradition, um, more arguably. That's what I was going to say. All the all the really pro-democratic people that I can think of in writing are like William Carlos Williams and like, you know, uh, Whitman. Walt Whitman. I always think of Whitman. <laughs> or, or, well, you know, and Ralph Ellison's essays, his nonfiction is very often overtly pro-democratic. But yeah, to think about the, the intersection of fiction with all of these questions, I guess we'll get to this a little bit later when we get to talk about your work. But maybe before we do that... Um, I'm curious for those of our listeners who are writers or people connected to the literary community, frequenters of the library, uh, how can they get involved in Book the Vote? Please come to our website, writersfordemocraticaction.org, and push on the join button or the Book the Vote button. All of the buttons eventually lead to how you can join and where you can join and what you can do. And often all you have to do is sign your name to be counted among us. And we're just fighting for justice and, and to safeguard democracy, which we care about deeply as literary citizens and as citizens of the world. I just want to say in this moment, too, that I'm always aware as somebody who spent half my life elsewhere, that there are many places in which we couldn't be having this conversation. And even many of my students who can't write what they want, who can't publish what they want, who have a lot of intersecting and difficult vectors, determining for them what they can say, what they can write, how they can say it, whether they can say it. And so I think in a way that's another answer to your question about ways to be patriotic. I feel patriotic about the fact, without being jingoistic or knee-jerk, patriotic about the fact that I'm allowed to write whatever dirty novel I want to write. And I can take whatever position in that novel I want to take. And maybe the novel, you know, won't on its own merit be <laughs> fantastic. But I'm not yet going to jail 
for writing or asking what I want to write or what I want to ask. And that's, that's not a given. So far, although we've done two episodes on book banning, uh, and you know, there's that has also become a real force here. And that goes hand in hand with anti-democratic movements, exactly. as you know. Exactly. I just penned on behalf of our Michigan committee, a love letter to the librarians in Potmos, Michigan, where they defunded, the community defunded a public library because there was an LGBTQIA book on the shelf, which people found, you know, I don't know, racy. It was a graphic novel. And they actually pulled the funding from this library. And libraries save humans. They save teenagers. They save children. They allow people who otherwise have no internet access to use the internet. As you mentioned earlier, they provide space for people to collect who maybe don't have anywhere to go during the day. And they give us books. I think of librarians as frontline workers, you know, for our minds and our imaginations and our capacities for human empathy. And so to me, defunding public libraries is an absolute obscenity. We, we must not tolerate it for one second. Can I ask what book that was? Yeah, it's a memoir about growing up non-binary called Gender Queer. It's a I've heard of that. Uh, graphic memoir about growing up queer. All right, we will link to that in our show notes. So I want to pivot a little bit to hear about your work. Um, you were talking about the importance of wonder, and we were, we were trading emails about Book the Vote, and we were corresponding about your novel, Banshee, which came out in 2019. And it's like a very intense and cerebral book about a woman having, I'm not spoiling this, uh, having a health crisis. I guess um, it's fairly immediately clear what it is. And, and she's exa- re-examining her own life. And there was a lot of reading it at this particular moment, I felt like there was a lot of metaphorical resonance. And there was a line on the very first page that just felt to me like now. Um, And the line is, I waited for the release of a bullet that might knock me flat. But in other chambers, it felt acceptable, predictable, a revelation that I as a sane adult should be able to tolerate. And I was like, Oh, God, it's my political life. Um, (laughs) And also this woman's interiority. And I wonder if you would just read a little bit to us from the book. Well, let me just first say thank you. And in solidarity, it's my political life, too. And one of the things I often ask myself is, how outraged do I feel? And is my is my constant sense of being peeled and experiencing every political horror and every human horror the result of not having gotten the memo about how to be an adult? Or is it some deep connection to my own imagination and capacity to to feel young and to feel things? And is my imagination, which I need in order to be a writer and a good parent, I think in some ways, a liability? Do the benefits outweigh, <laughs> outweigh the costs? And in a way, Banshee <laughs> is really a book about those questions. Let me just preface this short reading by saying that I was working for seven years on a war novel, which also came out uh, in 2019, which is set in 1940s Shanghai among a population of Jewish refugees from Nazi-occupied Europe who survived World War II because Shanghai let them land. And I had been working a very long time on this big sweeping historical novel, and it was extremely difficult, but it's fundamentally a novel about human decency and dignity and places where we welcome those who need a safe landing and places where we fail to do that. And at night, I was cheating on that novel with Banshee. I was writing this very compressed, very dirty, difficult novel that set, as you know, over three weeks. And her medical crisis is a small crisis, but she uses it to burn her life to the baseboards. 
And I often am asked by my lovely, serious, deeply engaged students whether in order to be a writer, you have to have a tortured, dark life. And I'm happy to be middle-aged and to be able to tell them truthfully, no. Actually, I don't think so. I think you can quarantine your darkest and worst inclinations in your work and that they're, thereby not have to kind of exercise those demons in your daily life. And in a way, Banshee is an expression of that. It's all the questions for me. And it's really just a novel that's dripping with fear and bad behavior and questions of what would it look like if a woman who has every marking of having you know conventional success and a safe life and so on and so forth flipped a small internal switch and just burned her life to the baseboards. Chapter eight. This is a two and a half page excerpt. I woke shellacked in my own freeze, pure black, nothing from outside, no night, still night. The sound of wind oozing, slow and cold, branches against the skylight. I took more stock, groped around in my mind. Charles? Charles is her husband. She's treating him badly. I scrambled to remember where he was, why not in bed? Yes, because Leah, because my whatever this was leading up to my surgery, surgery, I sat up, cancer, what? Something, terror, maybe, was puppeteering me. It drove me from bed and out onto our deck. It was nighttime, those long hours so long that fear made me prowl them, looking for something that wouldn't be visible, even if it were lit. Unable to bear the blank dark, I opened my phone and fell again into links, following one meaningless dot to the next until I felt full and sick, as if I'd devoured straight fast food, fat flour into my brain. I wanted to try to be more like men, or some men, my colleagues maybe, or Charles or his father. In other words, to care less who thought what of me. Here, you hate me? Fuck off. You think it's shameful that I'm sleeping with one of my students? That I ran the clock out on patience and affection and appreciation for my husband? That once I thought I might be dying any minute, dutiful love seemed suddenly not enough? Not exclusively anyway, not forever? You think I'm shallow, merciless, ruined, vain, a shadow of some other better version of myself? I thought so first. There's nothing anyone can think or say about me that will be crueler than what I've thought, whispered, even repeated like a mantra. Try to criticize me more harshly than I criticize myself. I dare you, you can't possibly succeed. I used to believe in the fundamental empathy of all people and to think that empathy was the most important ingredient, not only for a decent life, but also for any reasonable writing. But what if I've been wrong and brutality works too? Maybe all the mansplaining I've endured over a career of being dutiful has paid off. I've learned to be more entitled and selfish. I'm working on unapologetic. A fingernail of moon was scratching at the sky. I said the word stop until it filled my mind and drowned out both my thinking and the night noise. Once my mind was quiet, I decided to climb over the wrought iron railing of the balcony to see what it felt like, a trapeze maybe. I lifted my legs carefully and sat, then swung my legs after which I turned onto my stomach, feeling the wet bar across my hips and imagining I was an aerial artist high above a ring with people applauding below. I let my legs dangle now behind me over the two stories of our house. If I fell, I'd probably break some bones but not die. Our bedroom was only on the second floor. If I slipped and broke my legs or arms or even spine, people would likely think I'd meant to kill myself. By people, I meant Charles and Alexi. 
hanging from the second floor bedroom deck was such a pitiful and domestic way to commit suicide. What my fourth grade teacher would have called a fizzle ending. Boring. I hoped I wouldn't fall, but I didn't want to climb back to safety yet. I lowered myself further, felt the muscles in my arms ripple all that swimming. This was apparently why I'd kept fit for so many years, so I could swing like a delusional monkey from Charles's in my deck. The whole cold night was behind me. I no longer felt like I was under the impossible sky. Now I was part of it, side to side with it. Hanging, I was like a blinking star, a million miles from myself, outside of my dangerous, vulnerable, stupid body. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. When you were emailing with Sugi earlier, you referred to the heroine of Banshee as contending with stasis as she deals with a quote-unquote impossible context. And like Sugi, I feel some resonance with our I feel some resonance with that in our present position. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you said you were cheating on this novel uh, on this by writing this book with a with a, a larger historical book that you were writing? And this book was obviously what years were you writing in? What was the political environment around you when you were when you were writing it? And is there a connection between that and the and what's happening? Yeah, it's fun to think about that question, actually. I started writing the war novel, which is called Someday We Will Fly, in 2011. And it's about migration and, and safe landing. And so obviously the context of the Trump years changed that dr so dramatically that it became extremely difficult for me to continue inside of that novel. Because when I started writing it, I thought, well, the Holocaust, for example, is a history we've learned from, <laughs> and we're not in immediate danger of repeating that particular history. And I was interested in that novel in the question of children landing at borders without their parents. But it was before family separation, right? Well, it wasn't before because that's been going on forever. But it was before the sort of acute attention was being paid to that and before it became a punitive and disastrous, massive undertaking of that administration, right? To, to punish families in that way. And so while I was writing that and the world was getting worse and worse, I was feeling more and more panicked and more and more furious. And I started writing Banshee out of that fury because I didn't want to... I didn't want to brutalize my protagonist in Someday We Will Fly. I didn't want to give her the life I thought she might now have. I wanted that novel to end on an inhalation. I needed it to be oxygenated with hope, or it was an unbearable novel for me to write. This child arrives in Shanghai without her mother and has to wait out the war to see whether her mom has survived, and she has to manage in Shanghai. It was a Polish-Jewish 14-year-old or 15-year-old. Um, and in Banshee, I felt like I could just take over and I could pump all the rage into this novel about this one incredibly <laughs> angry person. And her context is America, although I was very careful not to be sort of um, especially dated about it or, or political in a way that made the novel exist only in that moment, partly because it was a moment I never wanted to revisit myself. I certainly didn't want to trap my novel in it forever and ever, but she's also just trapped in her own body, which is a a problem for human beings and a particular predicament for women. And the medical industrial complex both keeps our bodies alive and makes our psychological lives difficult, I think, in certain ways. And I was interested in examining the intersections between a body and a life and the divergences between bodies and lives. I feel like that really has been sharpened, that connection. Um like the peril that our bodies place us in, I feel like since 2016, really. I mean, also before that, as you mentioned, but um, for me, at least it feels like someone's taking like the worst color of highlighter and just 
um, marking up all of the, yeah, the, the shittiest ways we can treat each other. So the book is a very satisfying read, at least for me in part because it's so angry, I will say. So I recommend it to all of our readers and um, also, of course, your your other novels, your memoir and your poetry collection. Rachel, we so appreciate your joining us for this conversation. And, and listeners, we want to remind you not to miss Book the Vote. It's um, probably happening in a bookstore in your state near you. And you can you can go to the website and, and look for an event to support on September 20th um, or a table to walk by before that. Um, so don't miss Book the Vote and also Rachel DeWaskin's other writing. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for talking to me about WDA, my beloved organization. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at Talk on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, stay safe and healthy out there.